Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Sandy Rodriguez, whose history and the present addressing work is featured in four ongoing museum presentations, including Mix Pantley, Contemporary Echoes at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art through June 12th, Borderlands at the Huntington Library until this fall, Revision, Art in the Americas at the Denver Art Museum through July 17th, and the headline show, Sandy Rodriguez in Isolation, a solo exhibition of 30 new works on paper that join addresses of American history to present events, such as the COVID-19 pandemic and mass responses to police violence. It's at the Eamon Carter Museum of American Art in Fort Worth through April 17th. In a few weeks, you can see Rodriguez in another Denver Art Museum exhibition, Traitor, Survivor, Icon, The Legacy of La Malinche, which will open February 6th before traveling to the San Antonio Museum of Art. Rodriguez's work explores the methods and materials of painting in works that address native and colonial histories, memory, and contemporary events. Among her exhibition credits are the recent triennial at El Museo del Barrio, the Riverside Art Museum, Art and Practice in Los Angeles, and more. On the second segment, Austin Baron Bailey on In American Waters, the Sea in American Painting. But first, Sandy Rodriguez, after the break. On view at the Getty Villa Museum through January 24th, 2022, Rubens, Picturing Antiquity, is the first exhibition to focus on Flemish master Peter Paul Rubens' fascination with the art and literature of ancient Greece and Rome. Named an essential art exhibition to see this fall by the Los Angeles Times, the show features thrilling drawings, oil sketches, and monumental paintings juxtaposed with rarely shown ancient objects, including exquisite gems owned by Rubens himself. Heroic nudes, fierce hunts, splendid military processions, and Bacchic celebrations illustrate Rubens' ability to translate an array of sources into new subjects. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents the exhibition Milton Avery, curated by Edith Devaney and organized by the Royal Academy of Arts London in collaboration with the Modern and the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art. Avery is considered one of North America's greatest 20th century colorists. His career fell between the movements of the American Impressionists and the Abstract Expressionists, leaving him to forge a staunchly independent path. This comprehensive exhibition brings together a selection of approximately 70 paintings from the 1910s to the mid-1960s that are among his most celebrated. These works typically feature scenes of daily life, including portraits of loved ones and serene landscapes from his visits to Maine and Cape Cod. The color sensibility and balance that run throughout his work had a major influence on the next generation of artists. On view through January 30th in Fort Worth. And we're back. Sandy Rodriguez, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to get to talk to you today. Let's start by going back to 2014 a painting you made called Tear Gas Number 1 Ferguson. It's a picture of a tear glass cloud in which the cloud is red, white, and blue. And you showed it in a 2015 show at Art and Practice in Los Angeles, along with a suite of other paintings of violence and especially fire. But for me anyway, the Ferguson painting feels especially foundational. What did that painting and perhaps that whole show do to instigate and maybe establish a foundation for, for kind of where, where you're at now? Thank you for that question. I haven't thought about that painting in a bit, but I will tell you that within the works that I've created, there are moments when I cycle back and there is a transforming of a subject through materials. 
2014, I was in a 16-month residency, a painting residency with Art and Practice. And while I had planned an entire different suite of paintings, the kind of moments of rupture and protests started taking place during that residency. It was at that moment that I was compelled to get into the studio and work on canvas to make sure that these moments of human rights abuses that are taking place in civilian kinds of moments, or not civilian moments, but tear gas is outlawed in times of war, and yet we're deploying tear gas and chemical agents against protesters that are grandmas and children and college students. It was one of those moments where you're seeing history and you're a witness to this particular moment. And I'm compelled to preserve that within a work that will then prompt conversations about how did we get here? Why is this okay? The subject of tear gas is an entire suite of pictures, as well as these nocturnes and those fire and protest pictures. But it was at this moment that I had used a bottle of cochinilla, which is carmine, as a ground for a painting. And as I painted a moment of the Mariana doors at the Palacio Nacional being firebombed amid a protest, that I understood that the material could also support the content in a really beautiful and dramatic way. And so that was kind of that moment of transition from moving away from European paint and canvas supports to working on amate in colors that symbolically and conceptually created another layer of meaning. I just painted a scene of tear gas in the map that is on view, uh, or that will be on view at the Eamon Carter, in one of the vignettes in Oakland, where officers deployed tear gas on protesters, again, you know, demonstrating against police brutality. And it was just earlier this fall, I think, that 33 officers were charged with excessive force. So these moments where communities are in, in moments of resistance and uprising has always been important for me to kind of meditate on and make physical to create an object to prompt conversations and action. Violence is a prominent theme in your work. Now, I don't want to make it sound like everything you do is an address of violence or that there's violence present in every work, but but across what you do, it, it's there a lot. There are lots of national and regional histories that are violent all over the world and all over the U.S., but the history of what is now the Southwestern and Pacific United States is particularly horrifically violent, as is much of, you know, our last decade. Did you come to the way in which you focused on that region, our, you know, the, the Southwestern U.S. in recent years through your interest in the place or in the history of the violence there, or is your whole position that these two things are indistinguishable? My interest is in the history of a place. I am originally born in San Diego, right near the U.S.-Mexico border. I lived in Tijuana in my elementary school days. By the time I start middle school, I moved to Los Angeles. The history of this area is not taught in school. 
the kind of hidden histories, this culture of amnesia and erasure of communities, of histories, is so glaringly obvious that it is important to understand that to explain how we are who we are now. I, I am a native Californian and I am and I've lectured up and down California and I am routinely astonished by how little of the history of the place Californians were taught in high school or in college. I, I appreciate very much <laughs> what, 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 what you're saying, or, or I, I appreciate very much your, the, the shared experience. How did you come to decide that you wanted to put violence and the land often in map form together in works? Was it a sudden realization? Did it come through the practice of your practice? Maps become a form as I begin to do more field study. It was at the moment when I was able to move away from full-time work in museum education and paint full-time and then teach in my spare time. So I flipped it in 2016. That allowed me to create a schedule where each quarter I could go off and do field study in the landscape of the Western U.S., across 10 states, in various floristic communities. And when you're doing that kind of extensive and intensive travel that requires that you go out for 7 to 14 days at a time, off-grid, no running water, no cell service, there is a slowing down and a kind of communion with these sites, right? You fall asleep and you wake up with solar kind of time. You hear the sounds of birds. You see specific locations that you normally would not have access to. And you're working with a real map. <laughs> and then you're thinking about some of these early travel journals from the 19th century. And when you're thinking about all of these documents that play a really important part, it is a way of making visible, it is a way of being a mirror to this time and place that you are experiencing. So maps really become, it went from landscape to maps with landscapes within them. That was the shift in, in 2017. Seascapes too. <laughs> yep. So you talk about field research. Tell us a, a little bit about what you do when you're out doing field research and if one of the paintings in the Carter Museum show, Collecting Color, is a picture of some of the field research you do? So field research can be 14 days. It can be several months. It depends on how much time I have. I will typically go with one or two other people, which would be an herbalist who I've worked with for a number of years. And so the days are basically spent on plant walks, looking at a variety of databases, notes that we've taken, where these certain plants were last seen, what year, the elevation, the facing slope, in attempts to see plants that are endemic that only grow here and nowhere else in the world. And it's because of a lot of various geologic kinds of conditions that you have, as well as a number of other things that I won't get into. But so it's searching for these edible medicinal utilitarian plants that are native to this region. I then basically will draw on a mate in the field 
studies of them on these small four by six postcards, go back, consult a variety of books that are part of that trip, <laughs> and bring all of these studies of landscapes and plants back to the studio, post them all the way around the larger sheets and really spend time with them to figure out how my experience with this site and how the ethnobotanical research on each one can point me to other books to learn more about the uses for medicine as well as for pigment. It is through kind of that field study part that I then start digging through a lot of historic texts and for the work with that is on view at the Carter, the image called Collecting Color, which it was done just as I was beginning the field research and hadn't been out of the house, had not been out in public, had not done any field research, was just imagining what it would be like to go out and actually do some botanizing and collecting. And that is a reference to the Book of Color, which is or the chapter on color, which is chapter 11 of book 11 of the Florentine Codex that describes where and how painter, scribe, scholars, laquilos, would collect color. So there's these visual narratives that describe the process of collecting color in black and white because it was created amid a pandemic or an epidemic, I should say, that wiped out 90% of the population. And I've done a few of these pieces that are a reference to it, but of course I've taken out the male painter and included myself, which you always can tell with little freckles and curly hair. And that particular scene is a scene of collecting of a yellow, but the text describes it as a yellow flower from the hotlands and it doesn't give you the name of the plant. <laughs> there is no proper ID on its Latin binomial, but it was a hopeful kind of what does it look like to collect color when we should not be going outside? So to be clear, I think what you're telling us is the process by which you're collecting plants from which you can make pigments, pigments that you will then use in making, making your work, especially work on Amante paper. Yeah, when I'm creating these paintings... There is a site specificity about the mineral and plant-based color that I impregnate the fibers with through binding it with a binder to make paint. It has the, the power of the material and the life force of the vascular plant that I processed to put into this picture. So before we get into codices and, and to some of the other recent work, in recent exhibitions, including in the show at the Huntington and in your 2019 show, I think I'm getting the year right, at Charlie James in L.A., I think in a show before that, too, you, f you foregrounded how you make your materials, not in a textual way and not in the way we're talking about it, but you show it right in the gallery with physical stuff. Why is it important for you to show people next to your work, in front of your work, what the work is made out of? It is just a joy and a love of mine to think about ways in which audiences engage with objects in an exhibition space. If I can, in a display, point to the history of color making alongside these images, then I want to prompt those questions. The raw materials of having 
ochres and Maya blue and cochinilla and walnuts and other, you know, logwood, all of these materials that have been traditionally used in image making in the Americas is pretty. It's powerful. It lends so much more to the work to really just kind of unpack that for visitors. I always really enjoyed looking at exhibitions, museum exhibitions that had the historic methods and material display nearby to really kind of slow down, look more closely, and imagine what that relationship to material might be like. I am from three generations of painters and looking at the tools and the setups of the production of the work has always been as fascinating for me as seeing the work. So it's just a very important part of the work also. There's a work that I think might illustrate this really well that is in the Codex Rodriguez Mondragon. It's titled uh, Mapa de la Region Fronteriza de Alta y Bajas Califas from 2017. It's, it's two, I think it's two pages or maybe one very large page. It's 97 inches by 47 inches. Yeah, it's huge. It's, 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 <laughs> it, 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 it's so huge that it's, uh, it, it's the argument for books, right? Um, because you need to show it across multiple pages. To, to, to when, when I get it. more funding for my next book, I want that to be a centerfold. I like it. I like it. It's it. We'll have an image of it on bandpodcast.com. But when I heard you talking about color and its relationship to place, this was the work I, I thought about. It, it's a map of a non-United States California with certain regions in certain colors, purple-ish, pink-ish, blue-ish, ochre-ish. Could you maybe talk us through kind of where those colors come from and how you chose to use them here? So... In 2017, I worked on this is the first monumental map. So as I said, I had dozens and dozens and dozens of field study sketches, these four by six sketches that I go back to the studio with. And then the job was to blow them up into the larger botanicals. The map that really that we're discussing is this monumental map of Alta and Baja California. So there are a number of floristic communities in California. We have over almost 6,000 endemic native species of plants in California because we have this floristic diversity, because we have east-west mountain ranges like the Transverse Range that separates Southern California from Northern California, several different deserts. So each region is color-coded with a colorant that is extracted from that site. If we're looking at the Baja area and then going up into the Sonoran Desert, that's all painted in cochinilla, which is the red that is produced from the scale insect that ingests the flesh of the paddletail cactus, the apuntia, and the female insect creates this red carmine that we know changed global markets for a few hundred years, 16th to 18th century. So I am from this area and I feel like the cactus is standing in for Latinidad here. And so I really was excited about making this beautiful pink watercolor and using that for that particular area. Just to the left of that, from left and north, 
you have this acidic yellow. And that is an organic colorant that's also heat extracted from an Asclepius, which is a native milkweed of the area that has been used for respiratory illness and a number of medicinal uses, but has also been processed historically as a dye stuff, both in Southern Californian um, native traditions as well as other areas. Just to the north of that, along the central coast, there is this purple, and it makes the brown fibers of the fig bark and the amate turn almost blue like veins. Which you can see on, on the work itself. And this color is extracted, a heat extraction, also from endemic native plant that is Sambucus nigris cerulea. So that is a, a native elderberry to the area. And through each particular area, it's because I did field study going to these different areas. North of the purple is an indigo-based color that was more of a 19th century reference to the Bay Area, thinking more about mining and the history of mining in this particular region of California. Just to the south of that, you have this golden yellow, which is just onion skin that has been processed. And that's a nod to the central Californian growing fields. And on the right-hand side of the map in Alta California, you have scenes of the Great Basin Desert, the Mojave Desert, and the Sonoran Desert. Because I camped for five days in each one of these deserts over the spring, so in March, in April, and in May. Each landscape is framed with endemic plants that are used for color that are also edible and medicinal. And then there's an entire series of vignettes on the right that are showing the processing of color as, again, a reference to this treatise on color contained within a 500-year-old Mexican colonial manuscript called the Florentine Codex that shows the visual preparation of the colorants. Embedded within the whole map are these small razor wire rings representing immigration detention centers across this entire region where migrants are caged and held in captivity. And so it's this moment of really reflecting upon a conceptual and historic use of color to communicate with audiences in the colonial period that would have been understood back then to stand in for solar realm, under realm, celestial realm. And I'm just in this moment playing with how do I symbolically use color to tell the stories of this place? And how do I layer mineral with organic colorants to create this first map? And Again, it was about a year's worth of field study and research and then another four or five months of painting this because this is the first time I'm working on Amate. And Amate paper is unlike any paper you've ever worked on and it does not behave the way you might expect it to. You have to use different brushes, a full different approach. So there are several smaller versions and test areas <laughs> on various sheets before this piece uh, came into existence. Thank you for all that. One of the things that I really like about the archaeology you're doing on your own work <laughs> for us is that the history of color in European art history or in United States art history is a history of trade routes and imperialist 
practices and and things made accessible, things and places for that matter, made accessible by imperialism. And so the color you're using here, and I think we'll probably this will probably come up again as we keep talking, rejects all that potential sourcing. So we, a couple times we've 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 talked about codices, and we just talked about a work that's part of the Codex Rodriguez Mondragon. What is that work? What motivated it? And how did it come to take the form it took? It's the, the biggest, sprawlingest, headlinest work in your career. There is a moment when I had the opportunity to really think more deeply about my work and my research full time, to understand what I didn't know. I had spent my entire work life career in museums learning European art history, learning American art history understanding how to read conservation reports, understanding how to examine a treatise, uh, maintaining libraries for major institutions. And I hadn't had the opportunity to really think about the history of materials of my family, my background. And coming from three generations of painters, they all worked in oil on canvas or worked in carving and sculpture, but very much from a Western identified and European identified perspective. I grew up with reproductions of Murillos and Dutch masters and French 18th century reproductions that were changed a bit. But long story short is I wanted to learn more about image making and how color and when color is introduced to the palettes of the Americas. So when I, I came across the research of Diana Magaloni and read about the Florentine Codex, it was this moment to examine multilingual text and think about the traditions of visual narratives. When I learned that the majority of codices the colonial Mexican period manuscripts, accordion books, had been destroyed in an attempt to wipe the slate clean and that very few existed and they did not exist in American collections that I had access to in Southern California or anywhere close by. It was a moment to really think about the materials and to create a new codex that was named after my parents, Rodriguez and Mondragon, and not the Dresden Codex, not the Florentine Codex, not the the ways in which codices are renamed for the city and the institution that they are held in. One of the major works within that codex is titled Mapa de Los Angeles for Those Killed by Police in 2018. It's an, another massive piece. It's, it's 94 and a half inches wide, um, and it is dominated by three distinct regions, um, a sky in which, you know, we see stars and celestial activity, such as comets, the Pacific Ocean, which has fish in it. <laughs> I, I, mean, I mean, you know, both both in the artwork and for real. <laughs> and land, Los Angeles County and environs. It, it's another story, a uh, visual story of, of violence. In 2018, why did you make this work? And then we'll go back and talk about the sky and the sea. So... I had a wonderful conversation with a curator who was working then, Stephen Wong, was working at the Los Angeles Municipal Art Gallery. And 
he invited me to create a map of Los Angeles after seeing the map of California. He said, I've you know seen two of your maps of California. I'd love to see one focusing on Los Angeles. Will you create this for our exhibition called Here? And I looked at a number of different types of maps of Los Angeles going back to the 19th century and looking at a lot of these bird's eye view maps, you know, Los Angeles. And so it, it was a moment to really reflect on what story is critical to present at a Department of Cultural Affairs Municipal Art Gallery space for a very different type of audience than you get in some of the other spaces because the Municipal Art Gallery is on a very large hill at Barnstall Art Park next to a Frank Lloyd Wright house and a giant park and a theater and a junior art center. So you have a broader audience of Los Angeles that uses that space. So the opportunity presented itself and that's why the work exists. The map shows violence that has happened in Los Angeles County historically and presently, if you will. And so one of the things about the map that jumps out at me most is that we we have the sky, which we um, imagine or understand as always having been there as being timeless. That's the word I'm looking for. Same with the sea, same with the Pacific Ocean off of the Southern California coast. So two areas that make up the most of the work are, are, are timeless things. And in the third area, which is a little bit smaller, but is centered, we have violence being presented. Is, is, is some of the underlying point that violence in this place is as timeless and intrinsic to it as the sky and the sea? Sort of. I'll tell you, the violence that you see on the land is marked by little red dots. Some of it. There's also a hanging and other things. Correct. But to understand where and how this kind of state violence and public execution takes place in 2018, 35 residents gunned down uh, in their parents' backyard, on the freeway, going to work, on the front porch. How did we get here? Let me interrupt for a quick second. 35 residents gunned down by L.A. County police. Right. So 35 residents gunned down by police in Los Angeles in one year. So here's my attempt in 2018 to make sense of that by looking back at other moments of violence within Los Angeles and specifically looking at certain lynching sites in downtown L.A. that now occupy the place of the Superior Courthouse and really kind of pulling some of those historic elements that are done in a walnut ink meant to fade and disappear into the Amate fig bark are opportunities to go backwards and forwards in time. But to say that this place that we live on has been occupied and these types of abuses of residents is not anything new. While we're on Mapadelos Anhalis, let me bring up something that you do in this work and that you do in a lot of works, and that's you paint plants. And and you often paint them um, at the moment they're flowering or at the moment they're, forgive this word, burying. I don't know. What do you call it when a plant buries fruit? Oh, so even if it's a berry, it counts as fruit. I like they're it. They're fruiting. Okay. They're fruiting. <laughs> so in the context of this work, why do you include three or four or five plants? And then why do you... What about making kind of individual plant portraits interests you? 
So there's a way of referencing areas and neighborhoods. Because this was a, a commission that was created for the Municipal Art Gallery, it's in Hollywood, there is a myth about the naming of Hollywood, that it's because of the California Holly. And there's a great article by Lila Higgins from the Natural History Museum that really unpacks all of that. But it was a moment to say, okay, well, there is this story about the naming of Hollywood, so I'm going to use Toyon. And Toyon does not make the best color. In my attempts to extract color, it was a little kind of pukey Pepto. I didn't integrate it into the map, but it is an important plant that I, that can serve as a, a locating device within Los Angeles. The creosote that's off towards the desert side of LA County is creosote. That's what the desert smells like. It is a panacea. It is the most beautiful at the fruiting and the flowering state. You can identify native plants in the state of fruit or flower. If you're really good, you can identify it in its dormant, sticky, like flowerless, leafless state. But these are, are devices of referencing a particular floristic community. There's a little tiny manzanita that's further to the south. And then a non-native but naturalized pomegranate that became the yellow for all of those stars in the sky for the comets that are the omens of the dead. And I think that's all I can see in terms of plants on this particular one. But it's a reference to going out in different areas and really locating space. So the question I have about plants here, there are three of them, including a magnificent yucca tree. You've also made a fantastic drawing of an individual yucca tree which I nerd out on in all kinds of extraordinary ways because Californians have been making artworks of single solitary yucca trees since, I don't know, the 1870s. It's almost as, as not, it's not as famous, but it's almost as central to art made in California as uh, giant sequoia. So one of the things you do in this work is it's a, it's a, it's a map from a three-quarter angle with topographical drama and the L.A. River running through it and the Pacific Ocean in the foreground. And on the left-hand side of your composition is a tree. And on the right-hand side of your composition is a cactus, kind of framing the view of the land and the landscape. So in the context of art history, this could be considered a classic Claudian landscape, you know, uh, framing a landscape in action in, in a way familiar from the works of Claude Lorrain. Were you interested in that history and updating it for your site, your place, your subject, or am I working too hard? <laughs> I'll tell you there are a number of histories and references in this picture. I have, as you know, studied quite a bit of European and American art history just through the very nature of working with American encyclopedic collections over, you know, almost 20 years, I've moved towards really looking at a number of sources. I'm also very much influenced by the Relaciones Geográficas, which are maps that were created in the colonial period to describe the land and its holdings, to then export to the crown to see where and how people spatially describe the place they live and the resources of that place. I'm also keenly interested in the diseños, which are these 19th century hand-drawn maps of locations that 
position property boundaries by the tree with that little bear over there or the small hills that have the rabbits in them. There, there is literally a bear in the painting and there are literally rabbits in the painting. <laughs> and actually the bear, the bear seems borrowed from the California state flag in, in inverse, I should add. Well, and this is the California grizzly that is now extinct. And so it's, it's kind of hanging out there in Topanga. There's also um, amorous turkeys humping underneath the rainbow up in the top right. You, you often have amorous animals, it must be said. Well, I'll tell you, when you're off doing field study, you see some things and ah! stuff. <laughs> yeah, the rainbow appears to be coming from those turkeys, in fact. Yes. And there's also the Seven Sisters constellation up in the top right. So there's a lot of intended and unintended kinds of ways in which I'm attempting to make visible kind of the meeting of two worlds and create this landscape of Los Angeles sans invasive imported trees and elements. These plants that you see, the California oak, which is over on the left-hand side, is an ambiguous oak. We have 21 endemic native oaks. And but this oak is is really more in the form of a cosmic tree or an axis mundi as it has the cardinal directions below it and it has a bird on top of it. The yucca brevifolia, the Joshua tree, is out in the Mojave Desert as an indicator plant. The paddletail cactus, which is in flowering state in the south, is intended to be a reference to the southern area. There was originally a ginormous coulter pine that has like these almost claw-like points to the edge of the pine cone, but that got pulled out, the turkeys got put in, and then the scene of the Tongva resistance ends up being positioned more prominently on the right-hand side of the picture. We've been talking about land and plants mostly, which is, of course, because I've been asking questions mostly about land and plants, but you also very often include within bodies of work and within your exhibitions people, portraits, portrayals of people. Why is that a key strategy, and how do you choose the people you choose to depict? So I'll tell you that there are a number of portraits within the series. In my 2019 exhibition, there are a number of healers that just recently showed at the Museo del Barrio in New York. And these healers are taking the posture and the gesture from healers from colonial period manuscript, the Florentine Codex. I've taken the face, it's something my grandma used to do. I've taken the face of a contemporary, a friend, and these friends are scholars that I've been working with that have been supporting my work and holding me up in the middle of some of the more challenging content that I'm working on. So it's a dual portrait, right? It's a, a portrait of a person who... I have a relationship with that I'm putting in the guise of this type or this healer, right? So there's different reasons. In the first map, there are some vignettes. Oh, no, the second map, which is the map of the immigration customs raids from 2018 in the sanctuary state of Cabalifas. We haven't talked about that particular one yet, but there are some portraits up at the top where you have five or six people pointing at an omen and it's a column of fire. But I've done the portraits of 
scholars that I've been working with and people who are holding me up. So Ella Diaz is on one side from Cornell University and then Diana Magaloni from LACMA. And then myself is on the right, my mother, and then my sister, who's also a scholar who works at Loyola Marymount. And so it's about placing people I love and care for within these pictures as a type or a character. In the case of the portraits of the seven child migrants who died in Customs Border Enforcement custody in 2019, it's because I was so compelled by these stories and so moved by these stories that I needed to create an entire exhibition as an offering or an homage to these children that would be forgotten in the news feeds for audiences that aren't directly impacted by them. So it was almost a memorial, but also a call to action. So portraits happen for a number of reasons that vary from object to object. You know, we've been talking a a lot about how you put plants and constellations in the sky and the sea in the pictures. In your Borderlands pictures from 2019, there are, and in other pictures too, I should say, there are two clear non-natural incursive forces. Border-controlled you know, trucks and um, helicopters, which have in your visual language skull-like faces that form the front half of the helicopter, if you will. You could have chosen any manner of non-natural symbols to symbolize violence, danger, incursion, American government, bad faith, and killing. But you chose helicopters and border patrol trucks. And I was wondering why those in particular. So for the field study that I did in preparation for that exhibition, I flew in to Arizona, rented a four-wheel drive vehicle, and then started off in the mountains, went down to the desert, from the desert over to Texas and back to Arizona before I finished that trip. When we went south from the mountains into Nogales, which has got a twin city on both sides of the border, it was positively infested with Border Patrol vehicles that are skidding around these dirt roads all day and night. And at night, they're dragging chains behind them to erase footsteps so that they can see if people are on foot trying to migrate. Passing through the desert, yeah. Yeah. And I was so terrified by this constant surveillance that I couldn't camp outside under the stars like I like to. I had to sleep in the back of a four-wheel drive. And I was dead asleep at three in the morning when all of a sudden two SUVs come screeching up to the passenger side door and I'm asleep and I sit up and I just see headlights and a cloud of dust and I'm positive I'm going to get pulled out by my hair and in some trouble. And by the time I text the person who I was traveling with, A, they're here, <laughs> they're they're right outside the door. By the time he responds, they have backed away just as quickly as they came and left. So it was just about uh, intimidation and just about letting me know that we were being watched. And that was scary as all hell. (laughs) 
So the inclusion of this presence that was with me the entire time, even being off grid, even being way out in the remote desert, added a layer to this series of work for this particular show. And so there's that moment when, again, it's this going back and forth through time. When I'm looking at book 12 of the Florentine Codex, that is the only account of the Nahuatl perspective of the Spanish invasion and conquest. There are all of these miniatures with all of these marine vessels and the weapons and the horses and the, you know, scenes that are graphically described in this visual narrative. And so it makes perfect sense. No, I'm not showing you images of boats coming in. I'm showing you SUVs. No, I'm not showing you some of these other devices that they're using like cannons. I'm showing you helicopters, you know, but there are moments in which you can encapsulate an idea and present it with a potent symbol. One of the works in the Huntington Show, um, study number two, features a far western version of the sort of triangular peak that populates much 19th century American painting. What about the, the, the mountain in this picture interested you? And were you interested in engaging with that part of American art history? And if so, why? The way of experiencing and understanding uh, the peaks within the transverse range, which are the San Gabriels through to the Santa Monica Mountains, again, which separate Southern California from the rest of the state. They cut east-west for, for people who don't know the geography. Yes, yeah, so most ranges go north-south. And so east-west, you have a very different floristic community that happens because of the way in which the sun hits the north and the south facing slopes. These mountains have multiple names. Some of these mountains are sacred mountains. Being keenly aware of how landscape functions within an American art collection, within the kind of uh, larger collections as well, was certainly in the back of my mind. I was up in those peaks hiking around, doing small studies, and then coming back to do a material study. So while it was initially intended to be a monochromatic just in red ochre that was locally sourced and just in cochinilla that is not so locally sourced but of the Americas, there was an opportunity to really just kind of think back to a number of sources again and really create a piece that was about the region, but also about the material for the art and color gallery. There are a number of apps that tell you the names of the contemporary peaks. And I was going to put the exact names of these in Tongva, Spanish, and it's in English, but I wanted to leave them as a meditation on color and place. There, there will be more of these, and I think as I think about some of these landscapes with the journal entry on the bottom, like you see a lot of these 19th century kind of travel journals, it'll it'll continue to evolve. And finally, we've talked a couple times about your work in art museums, particularly in museum education. Do you think you got anything from that career that informs what you're doing now? Of course. There are so many things that I have taken from 
the various versions of myself and brought and applied into my artistic practice. And I would say primarily it is the love of working across departments and working across institutions and making things bigger than I can make on my own. It is the consulting with conservators and historians and scholars and anthropologists and botanists and uh, landscape architects. It is just the joy of finding those conversations where it leads you to these unexpected paths. The joy of sitting with my books and digging through research materials to then just have the epiphany of these connections. It's about one of the things that I miss the most is not going to conference each year, not going to AAM or not going to NAEA and getting those sessions where people are pushing the field forward, you know. But certainly the getting into the content, the material, its reception at its time when it was created, ways in which you can play with those histories, and really thinking about audiences. How do I engage the widest range of audiences to have discussions that are comfortable and uncomfortable? How do I prompt people to ask questions of the people that they're visiting with or to do a little bit more research? There are ways in which objects can inspire a number of responses. And thinking about audience and thinking about museum and thinking about scale and material is all part of my artistic process, but certainly comes from my work in museums. Sandy Rodriguez, thank you. Thank you. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents MFAH plus U equals a dynamic duo. Discover the duality within the MFAH's major lineup of fall exhibitions and find your duo. Explore the parallels between two of the foremost figures in 20th century art in Calder Picasso. Witness the first exhibition devoted to Georgia O'Keeffe's work with a camera in Georgia O'Keeffe Photographer. Unravel juxtapositions in the legacy of the African diaspora through historical and contemporary works in Afro-Atlantic histories. See some of the most significant paintings from the Impressionist and Post-Impressionist movements in Incomparable Impressionism from the Museum of Fine Arts Boston. Plan your visit at mfah.org slash dynamic duo. Welcome back. Next up, Austin Baron Bailey joins me to discuss In American Waters, The Sea in American Painting. The exhibition, which opened at the Peabody Essex Museum in Salem, Massachusetts, and which is now at the Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art through January 31st, features assorted pictures of marine art from across 250 years of U.S. history. Bailey co-curated the show with Daniel Finnamore. Austin Baron Bailey, welcome to the Modern Art Nits podcast. Thank you, Tyler. I'm delighted to be here. Why did you want to look at the sea in American painting? The allure of the sea in American painting emerged for me when I was curator of American art at the Peabody Essex Museum and working next door in an office to Dan Finnamore, who is the curator of maritime art. And over many years, we were really interested in what we felt was a kind of false 
segregation between marine art and American painting, knowing that the two overlap and being right there on the harbor in Salem next to the Atlantic Ocean, we started to think about how could we break this open into a bigger conversation to look at all the different ways in which the marine themes, approaches of marine painters might have something to say to painters that were just thought of as Americans who did seascapes versus someone who made ship portraits. And so what began as a rather art historical conversation and discussion, we realized could blossom into something broad, thematic, engaging, and inviting, we thought, because there's so many extraordinary pictures that touch on so many threads of American experience. So thinking about the sea as this major new way of entering into thinking about American art writ large, thinking about canons of American art, inclusion and exclusion in that canon, we thought, how can the sea help us move into a, a bigger field? And also thinking about a lot of recent scholarship around the eco-critical, the environment, focus on oceans and climate change that are in the minds of so many people, we thought would add some relevance to this whole undertaking. What would be a good example of the traditional marine painter, fine art painter dichotomy? And how do you address or present it within the show? Well, one of the things that's interesting in the show that we do is to take the whole concept of portraiture, for example. And traditional marine painters are often thought of as ship portraits. They are documenting and capturing the characteristics, even the character and personality of a ship. It's identifying attributes and characteristics this is similar to the way one might capture the portrait of a person and try to convey that character, that look, idealize the sitter, and create the symbols to convey the identity of the sitter or this ship. And so even just thinking about marine painting as something that doesn't have to include water, that deals with maritime themes, whether commerce, whether a ship captain, whether an allegorical figure like Diana pictured on a, a main coast, as in the Zorak picture we have, really wanting to blur these conventional expectations of what we mean when we mean marine painting. So that's one category, but also, again, looking at the ways in which from on land or at sea, these seascapes can take on a different life and evocation beyond just documentation. You mentioned portraiture. Let's, pictorially anyway, start with a portrait, a type of portrait in which we might not expect to see the sea. Why is the sea behind George Washington in Gilbert Stewart's Constable Hamilton portrait of Washington in your collection at Crystal Bridges? So, the George Washington portrait that actually had been in the New York Public Library includes the sea because the merchant who commissioned the picture, the William Caron Constable, as a gift to Alexander Hamilton, who was the Secretary of the Treasury, he was engaged in international trade. And he was a member of a huge wealthy merchant house in New York in the late 18th century. And so 
his mercantile connections and success were tied directly to the sea. And this is the only portrait of Washington that makes reference to the maritime activities of the man who commissioned the portrait. And so the idea of the fact that these transatlantic connections, these maritime contexts for the early early nation become a way to tie in the for the purposes of this project and even within American art history, tie maritime history to these founding stories, not just about the colonies of the land, but the ways in which our colonial relationships and then our connections back to Europe as a young nation are founded in that mercantile and transatlantic trade, including the slave trade and including shipping of goods and services. So it's a way of creating one version of these origin stories around the importance and connectedness of maritime history to American art. And Gilbert Stewart, of course, being the preeminent portraitist of Washington, along with Peel and others, but probably the most famous. Is commerce the primary interest of American marine art of the 18th, late 18th and 19th centuries? Well, in a conventional sense, so much of marine painting as we understand it in terms of ship portraiture, in terms of documenting American ambition and invention, the brigs, the schooners, the fast ships, all of this business and industry tied to the sea and to representations of the American ingenuity that went into creating the faster ships, the bigger holds, all of that is a dominant story. And I think what is important about this exhibition is to acknowledge that story and to reckon with it and to show that there's a lot more than that and to address the very underpinnings of what lies behind those tendencies to celebrate the triumph of American you know, mercantile activity, which is slavery, which is imperialism, which is dominance of the seas and a lot of the problems of empire. So how do you present those problems within the project? In the project, we try to present them in a fairly balanced manner in that we don't want to pretend that these paintings and those traditions have not dominated and that they have not produced works that have become important to the American art canon and understanding of American art history. What we seek to do is to recontextualize them and to acknowledge that the stories that they open onto of the transatlantic slave trade, of international engagement, can also be expressed. And maybe not in as many paintings that have been produced, but we have a whole section, for example, on the transatlantic slave trade and look at a range of imagery, you know, that by black and white artists to show a spectrum of historical approaches in painting to these legacies. And we also have tried to introduce the work of native artists such as Kay Walkingstick. We have introduced artists like Jacob Lawrence and Huey Lee Smith to look at naval traditions from the perspectives of black artists and black sailors. And we are looking at how it's not one single dominant story and the ways in which even histories of immigration have been idealized as a way to kind of foregrounds this sort of Europe effect. 
And so we want to show that and acknowledge it as such while providing audiences a way into multiple other perspectives on the Marine. Although we should be clear, if memory serves all of those paintings post-date American slavery and the slave trade. Absolutely. Yes, they do. And that's one of the things in dealing with the production by American artists of art that deals with maritime themes and and presents the sea and the ships that sailed on it. That's what I mean by wanting to reckon with it. We want to be able to show these works that remain in collections that tap into histories that can be understood in different ways through our lens today and through different kinds of context. So the idea of you know not showing this art and trying to think more broadly about it feels unproductive from our perspectives. Two of America's major commercial maritime industries of the 19th century were cotton and whaling. Whaling is, you know, to use today's kinds of terminology, kind of a top five or so largest industry in the American economy from around the 1830s to around 1880, 1885. And of course, cotton's import to the American economy is well enough known that I'm not going (laughs) to bore everybody with statistics. How do we see cotton and whaling and their importance to the nation within the within the show? I think we have not focused heavily on those industries relative to the show. And what I mean by that is, to your point, these are top five industries. They are they are the dominant forces. But what we seek to do is to identify where ships or stories or experiences intersect with those histories of those industries, if that makes sense. So we haven't sought to find, you know, the most famous whaling ships or the ships that we know transported cotton. What we seek to do is to present a range of of types of imagery that suggest the experiences of mariners almost adjacent to those. And I would say as well, even thinking about pictures that suggest the significance of these industries to the United States and to trade. So in other words, John Wesley Jarvis's portrait of Oliver Hazard Perry from the War of 1812, and it's a monumental portrait. And so it suggests that the War of 1812 and the conflict with England over trade, you know, that these are kind of defining features of what it means to be a new nation. And so a portrait like that allows us to think about the monumentality of those conflicts to preserving the opportunity to remain active in those industries and to kind of control to the best of the new nation's ability those efforts to continue the trade of cotton and grow that economy. And of course, the whaling ships carried on throughout the 19th century. So I think that we do have, for example, there's a logbook in the show that features the Akushnet, which Herman Melville had at one time sailed on when he jumped ship in the South Pacific on a whaling voyage. So there are these kind of direct and indirect references to these driving industries of the 19th century and American culture. The Jarvis painting of Perry, we will have an image of it on manpodcast.com, is eight feet by five feet 
one of the things I remember about seeing the show is just how preposterously immense it is. <laughs> yes. And, you know, it belongs to the city of New York. And so what we hope that people will understand is, is when we include a picture of this, we think it's a, a strong painting, an important portrait, but it's also to show in a physical object, in an expression of Commodore in the War of 1812, how oversized, you know, these histories have been relative to others. And so when you can see the importance and the triumphant ways in which these these historical legacies have been remembered and captured and still dominate the space in which they're in, and then you present that next to works by Huey Lee Smith and next to works by Jacob Lawrence, and you think about the tradition of Black sailors, it allows you to in a way, kind of minimize the scale of that and to shift attention from these figures and these histories that loom over American art and history in ways that we believe have excluded some of the more important and some of the the vital threads in these stories. In the 1840s and 1850s, there was a dedicated transatlantic dialogue around the painting of water. John Ruskin in England was intensely interested in it, and Americans were too. In, for example, in 1855, the crayon famously slammed Frederick Church, saying, quote, he should not paint falling water, for he cannot. And, and American painters certainly took dedicated note. So are there pictures in the show in which we see painters engaging this discourse and, for lack of a better phrase, trying to prove themselves? I think that is one of the great foundations of this exhibition. We don't go so much into the sort of debate with Europe specifically, but what we do show in this range of paintings of water, of waves, is the the variety of approaches to depicting the water, the surface, the motion, the translucency, the crests of the waves. And we do talk a lot about how much of a technical achievement it was as an artist to be able to paint the water in these ways. And so I think that is a really thrilling part of this is to go through the show and to see from you know the late 18th century forward how artists from Moran to Robert Salmon to Fitzhenry Lane, even to Kay Walkingstick, Silva, how they have tried to capture these physical and fluid properties. And that I think is, is a really exciting part of the show. And even then the modern artists who move beyond the challenge, you know, in time and place that Ruskin is posing to, to his 19th century counterparts. But that is a, a major through line in the exhibition. The most important ways in which the sea has shaped American history is through the Middle Passage, of course, and in the West through Spanish colonialism and later through immigration from Asia. Of course, the British and the Russians were in the Pacific West too, but their presence and influence pales in comparison to the Spanish project. How does the project investigate and engage and look at how artists have examined those histories in their own time and I guess later too? I think we do have, I would say, two relatively focused sections around immigration 
and around the transatlantic slave trade and also around, you know, major expeditions to Asia, to the South Pacific. But the immigration story is one where you see a painter like George Lukes in the early 20th century looking at the experiences of passengers in steerage coming up onto deck. And similarly, Teresa Bernstein's wonderful painting from 1923 of immigrants, again, from steerage, which is the most economical and deepest level of a ship where those who cannot afford a higher class passage uh, had to stay. And so there would be moments when they could come up on the deck to get fresh air, to socialize. And you see that in both of these images from the early 20th century. And then we think about that in relation to the idealized origin stories of embarkation of the pilgrims. And also even artists like Michelle Felice Cornet, who was an immigrant from Naples and one of the first marine painters active in the United States and working in Salem, painting the ships that were sailing around the globe that went to war. And the idea of marine painters coming from abroad, you know, this pilgrim story, the myths of that, the idealization of the immigrant narrative, but the very real experiences of those, that's a very, very important aspect of marine painting that typically has been isolated or not thought about within the broad contours of that category of American art. So that's very key. We have not been able to deal as directly with the Spanish colonial project and Asia, in part because there are not that many works of American painting that address these as directly as the ones we've selected for the show. And you know, when we when any curator or group of curators is organizing exhibitions, as you well know, the choices to be made are very hard. The availability of works is sometimes contingent. And so we have sought to develop the stories in the strongest ways with the objects that we were able to secure for the show. And so the range of being able to demonstrate of such a variety regarding the slavery stories, I think is is really interesting. We move from Clement Drew's ship abolition and the wreck colonization, an allegorical picture confronting the horrors of slavery and the need to end slavery in the United States. We actually have a very painful image by William and Mary York showing the, the illegal slave yacht wanderer being chased by a U.S. naval vessel. And we are able to then extend the presentation of these ideas with work by Hale Woodruff, studies for his murals at Talladega College, where he's looking at the mutiny on the Amistad, and he's looking at the trial of the Amistad mutineers, and even the return to Africa of the Amistad members. And for the Crystal Bridges presentation, we're borrowing a work from the artist Nick Cave called Seasick, where he has found pictures of clipper ships and in thrift stores around the U.S. and created this large assembly of 10 to 11 of these kinds of paintings and created an assembly where he's got this sort of plastic, you know, galleon over the head of this racist figure uh, head and these two hands. And so that from his perspective as a black 
artists working today, these traditions, you know, inspire sickness and a, a, a totally different kind of reflection. So it's been really important to show really different points of entry into these histories by different artists at different times versus one singular, you know, example of pilgrims that might have to stand for a whole immigration story, for example. You've also included a number of abstractions of the sea, including a fantastic painting by Felrath Hines. Why did you choose to include how artists, painters, entirely painters, have abstracted away from the sea? To me, that's been one of the really exciting parts of this project is to think about how the maritime and artist's experience of the sea or imaginings of the sea inspire completely different modes of expression. So the idea that marine painting does not have to be completely realistic, that marine painting is not, again, just documentary, and that authenticity of experience relative to the marine can be expressed through the abstract. And Felroth Hines' untitled picture, inspired by his visits to the beaches of Chincoteague, is a great example of how you can take the formal properties of a horizon line, a beach, a sky, a seascape, and express that in bands of hard-edged abstract layers of color. So that is just one primary example, but the Norman Lewis is another where you get these roiling elliptical forms, blacks and reds as opposed to there's a, there is some blue, but Again, even the colors of the sea do not necessarily have to map exactly to the chromatics of what you might expect to see when standing on a sort of tan, sandy shore and a blue ocean and sky with white clouds. That literalness, I think, is important to abandon at times and to recognize that artists have abandoned that to create a different kind of conceptual orientation to the emotions the feelings and the experience of that threshold of being at water's edge. Austin Baron Bailey, thanks so much. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.